The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar cell and module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar is proud to be part of America's booming solar industry. The company's solar manufacturing facility supports 400 U.S. workers directly contributing to the burgeoning clean energy economy. That's not the only benefit of being located in the U.S. Mission Solar's Texas-based headquarters make it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, keeping your projects moving and on schedule. With a state-of-the-art R&D lab, Mission Solar pushes cutting-edge technology to the consumer after passing it through the highest reliability testing the solar industry has to offer. You can find out more about Mission's cells and modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, inside the minds of solar buyers. We're going to talk about what makes homeowners invest in solar and what turns them off about the sales process. Then, unraveling South Australia's statewide blackout, was wind power to blame? And finally, New York City's solar market is taking off. Now it wants to do the same for storage. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. Catherine is in Washington, D.C. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions. Hey, Catherine, how are you? Hi, great. And you were at your alma mater last week speaking at a conference, and I think Jigger showed up virtually. Yes, I was there really, and he was virtual. We all know each other virtually more than we do personally sometimes. Now, come on. If, 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 if you've attended a conference and you spoke and inspired students, but you didn't actually show, their, show up there in person, did people really know whether you were there or not? That's a conundrum for the world to figure out. <laughs> and that voice is Jigger Shah, the president of Generate Capital in New York City. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how are you? Excellent. A quick note before we begin, next Wednesday we will all be together on stage, not virtually. We have a live show at South by Southwest Eco. If you have story ideas you want to discuss, tweet them at us. Our handle is The Energy Gang. Also, GTM Solar Market Insight is coming right up in San Diego. We're going to have folks from NRG, SunPower, Microsoft, UBS, Walmart, SolarCity, EDF, and many others. And we're going to be recording a live interchange podcast. Join our editorial and analyst team at the Solar Market Insight Conference on October 25th and 26th. And you can use my name to get a discount. When you check out, the promo code is Stephen20 to get 20% off your registration. Okay, let's introduce our guest who has plenty of Solar Market Insights himself. Vikram Agarwal is the CEO of Energy Sage, an online marketplace for installers to compete and consumers to compare quotes. It is the third largest solar website in terms of traffic, as I understand it. Vikram joins us from Energy Sage's office in downtown Boston. Hello, Vikram. Welcome. Hello, Stephen. Hello, Jigger and Catherine. Great to be here. So we're talking about your Solar Marketplace Intel report, which compiles all the selling and buying trends you're noticing on the platform, and we're going to walk through many of them. I think one of the most compelling for me, and perhaps the most obvious, is that you're seeing the importance of choice on your platform. So basically, the more consumers get quotes, the more likely they are to buy. What's the optimal number of quotes that will increase the likelihood of a sale? Sure. Uh, Absolutely. Consumers are very interested in choice. They want to make sure that they're doing their homework. They are considering all their options before making a decision. Uh, So in terms of the optimal number of quotes we are finding is that five uh, is that 
perf that number where the conversion rates uh, go really high for us. Uh, so in our case, how much higher? So to give you some context, uh, when consumers receive just one quote, their conversion rates might be sub 10%, generally closer to the five or 6% mark. Uh, when they get five quotes, those conversion rates can be anywhere from 30 to 40% uh, dependent on the market uh, where those quotes are being presented. So we definitely see a very, very large uh, jump in the conversion rates. And consumers also, uh, uh, quantitatively, of course, we know this trend very very clearly, uh, but in other cases, consumers usually get back to us. Uh, in cases where they're only getting two or three quotes, uh, they typically get back to us and ask uh, to get few more quotes before they can make a decision. So I guess this just points to the importance of a robust local marketplace where you have a lot of installers competing for business and not just the you know the, the national sales model. This may speak to why closing is a lot harder for many of these national solar companies. Would you, would you say that's the case? Yeah, I, I think uh, what I would like to do is maybe talk a little bit about where the solar market is today. Uh, as all of us know that solar used to be a niche product a few years ago, uh, but now solar is kind of entering the mainstream. So people, there are now millions of households that are thinking about solar, considering solar, um, and a number of them are now actively shopping for solar. So as we all know, consumers are not all the same. Uh, we are uh, the four of us in this, in this call. I bet you all of us have different preferences and uh, different things are more important to us when we shop for certain things. For example... I just do uh, what Catherine and Jigger do. <laughs> uh, me too, actually. Uh, so I, so as you know, some of us may like to buy Hondas. Some of us may buy a Mercedes or an Infiniti. None of us are making the wrong choice. It is just that we value things differently. And that's exactly what we are starting to see in the solar industry where consumers, especially the mass market consumers, have different needs, different preferences, and they value things differently. So in, when it comes to solar, consumers are making three different key decisions. They are trying to decide what equipment to buy, how to finance it, and who to hire to do the installation. So three key decisions around equipment, financing, and labor. And what we are finding is that different consumers value things differently. So when it comes to equipment, uh, as we all know, not all the equipment is made the same. So uh, what, what we hear from consumers is for some efficiency may be the most important thing, or warranties, or country of manufacture, or aesthetics, how the panels look, uh, et cetera, may be the most important. When it comes to financing, some people may really value the lease model, some may value the loan model, uh, no money down, tax deductible interest, uh, uh, the different terms that loans uh, are, are actually offering the consumers. And similarly, when it comes to installation companies, there are consumers who value, again, different things. Some consumers prefer local vendors versus some consumers really like uh, large companies uh, selling nationally. So, but if you look at these three different choices that the consumer is trying to make, uh, and there are different options available in all these three categories, you can see the, 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 choi the, the choices magnify. Uh, and what, what Energy Sage is trying to do is make, make sense of all these choices in a very simple form, uh, give the consumer this kind of information in a very simple, standardized format with very transparent information. Um, and we see uh, really uh, succeeding at that. Our 
uh, we are growing very rapidly and uh, we are seeing our conversion rates uh, continue to increase dramatically. So Vikram, this is a great report. And I just, let me, let me start by just setting up a few assumptions here. One is that um, I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that you guys really got started through a very large Sunshot grant, right? So, yes. you know, go Sunshot. Go um, Sunshot. I, one of the things um, I wanted to benchmark here is, so how many systems did you guys facilitate during this report? Uh, during this report, I believe we have transacted roughly maybe $30 million uh, worth of residential PV systems. Okay, cool. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things that, that I wanted to sort of focus on is that is that some of the data that's coming through here is, uh, like on page 10, you really talk about the top equipment pairings and price. Um, the cheapest equipment pairings on your website were Canadian Solar and Solar Edge together. Um, and a lot of folks who were in that same sort of commodity solar panel space could have been up to sort of 10% more expensive, which I think was kind of interesting. And then obviously SunPower is more expensive, but then they have other benefits in terms of higher efficiency and, and things like that. Um, but the other thing that I thought was interesting is that a lot of the people on your website so these are people who really wanted to get multiple quotes and wanted to go through a process, and so they found your website and used it, really um, focused more on ownership and less on third-party financing. Uh, that's, um, not, uh, that's not entirely the case. So, uh, so the consumers ask for different kind of financing options, and if they say they don't have any preference, we will try to bring them all the options that are available to them. So, But even when presented options for leasing versus loans versus cash ownership, we are starting to see a lot of consumers favoring uh, ownership models. Uh, and I think we have recently written an article about why that might be and how can leases actually uh, become more competitive again. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the reason why national installations still favor third party is because there's a lot of proactive sales going on where they go to customers and really only offer them the third party ownership model. So a lot of those folks don't compare before they sign a contract. Um, that's exciting. And so so where do you think this goes? I mean, you know, you've done $30 million worth of transactions on your platform, which I think is fantastic. But ultimately, during this time period, there's probably been several billion dollars worth of residential solar that got done. And so, you know, so is this really about marketing? I mean, you know, when you look at Lending Tree or Trivago right now on hotels and things like that, I mean, does, is it really just that you guys have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to get your brand out there? Uh, not uh, So, yeah, there are a couple couple things happening. One, one I would like to clarify, this report covers about six months' worth of data. Uh, so this year we are looking to do somewhere in the 75-plus million to uh, 80 million-plus uh, of installations. And that said, I just we I like to remind uh, our team and, uh, and, and our investors that we have spent less money uh, in total than some of the larger companies have uh, spent on marketing and advertising solar in maybe a day or two. Uh, so we have, we have been very, very capital efficient, and even with that kind of capital efficiency, we are now starting to make inroads in this very large market uh, and, and starting to influence. Wait, uh, wait, wait, wait. I just want to revisit that. You've spent less on marketing in your entire history than some of the national companies spend it in a day? Actually, let me clarify. We have spent less money total on everything, including our platform and content and marketing than what larger companies have spent in a day 
on just marketing and advertising. Yeah. Pretty stunning. Uh, so it's it's a very exciting place to be in. And I think we what we like, uh, what what we are trying to do is lead with education and provide consumers with ad, as much information that we can uh, about all the key decisions that they are trying to make. And we, we are in an enviable position. We are not affiliated with one solar installation company or financing company or an installer. So we have the luxury of actually telling consumers what their options are, what the pros and cons of these different options, and under what conditions one option may be better than the other. So we find that that is helping with our credibility. Uh, our consumers tell us that uh, the information that we share, the data that we share, really breeds confidence. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually hoping that the industry starts doing that even more, share more information, more data right up front. Uh, we, we do consumer testing on a regular basis. We talk to our customers on a fairly regular basis. And one thing that we hear is that a lot of consumers tell us that they had become skeptical about solar because their first interaction with solar was a little bit negative. Uh, that the person, well, because people are bad mouthing each other, right? Is, people are bad mouthing each it? other. That's part of it. They may be uh, responding to deceptive advertising. Uh, they've been issue. I, I think we all have seen free solar panel ads or government giving out solar panels or somebody cold calling you uh, or knocking on your door, making that claim. So I think what people tell us is that they. They thought there was a little bit something slimy about solar and uh, they, they felt dirty. And the person who was trying to sell them solar did not come across as knowledgeable and could not answer even some of their basic questions. So sometimes we feel like the, the marketing that has gone on in the industry may have created more skeptics than prospects, uh, which, is a, which is not a good situation in a growing industry. So we are hoping that uh, the industry can be more transparent, more honest. We believe there is a big market out there. Vikram, I noticed that uh, you all are a finalist in the Green Tie Awards from the New England Clean Energy Council as an Emerging Company of the Year. So congratulations on being a finalist. That's awesome. Um, I have a question about consumers. We, my my sense is that the more informed consumers are the ones that are really going to follow through on a solar commitment. Are you finding that consumers are more informed by outreach and education and or is it more because there is a public policy at play in a state that really incentivizes people so i was just wondering what the kind of breakout is of where are you seeing the most uptick in consumers is it where there is public policy or is it where there's more of an of a very specific outreach effort sure. where are they combined it's it's a combination i think so we we did some research uh, uh, several months ago about where where did consumers uh, how did their solar journey start? What was the uh, trigger? And what we found was very interesting, and I think as you just pointed out, it's a mix. About 30% of them said they started their solar journey because uh, some solar salesperson or some solar sa uh, company reached out to them and talked to them about solar. So of course, I think the billions of dollars that uh, some of the companies, solar companies have spent have really helped. They have driven about almost 30% of consumers to consider solar. But at the same time, there is a lot of, um, we also heard that uh, consumers were finding about solar from their community. Uh, as we know, uh, over a million homes are now powered by solar. These people are now talking to their friends and family, their neighbors, uh, people are driving by. So that's creating a lot of excitement and interest in solar. Large businesses are encouraging their employees and even their customers to look at solar. 
utilities are now starting uh, in certain cases to help uh, inform their consumers, empower them to do to be good shoppers. Uh, as an example, Energy Sage has recently launched a partnership with a collaboration with National Grid that we are very excited about. Uh, there are other there are a number of different organizations that are now doing that. So that's of course uh, is generating a lot of interest. And last but not the least, media. Right. So there are at least a few dozen articles on a practically on a daily basis. Uh, in both national and local publications and blogs that are now talking about solar. So the consumer is getting a lot of hits from different sources about solar, and which is great. And uh, that's what's now starting to drive their, their interest. You know, there's a trend in here that is, I think, really important to address. And Jigger has mentioned this a few times on the podcast. And, and that is that the national installers are offering pricing that's much higher than the local installers because they just have much more complicated logistics and staffing and their their overall co- business costs are much higher. And so I think I heard that Next Step Living, you know, which went out of business, was offering prices that were more than 60% higher than some of the local installers. And uh, I don't know if, if the price discrepancy is the same across other companies, but very clearly you're seeing the local installers undercut the national installers on price. Absolutely. Uh, we constantly, I think one of the data points that you we have included in the report is almost 30% of consumers who are shopping on Energy Sage come, come to us after getting a quote from uh, one of the other big installers. And uh, in a lot of cases, they may share share the information with us or with our, ins- with our installation partners. And what we find that, yes, one is if uh, even for an ownership model, the prices are significantly higher, and the equipment is not uh, respectively uh, as as good uh, as, as what the local installers are offering. So, local installers in in large majority of the cases are offering a better value to the consumer. Uh, that said, we are we are pretty agnostic about uh, installers. I, we don't really, as Energy Sage, we don't really care who ener- consumers go with. Right, but I guess you know, from my perspective, though, you know, I think we're talking a lot of more a lot about value. But the Australian economy from two thousand nine to twenty fourteen got residential solar from a negligible level to one in seven houses in five years. I mean, my sense is if we're going to get solar onto one in seven houses in the next five years, which I think we can with the extension of the ITC, um, people are going to spend more money, including you. Like, I think we need a lot more marketing efforts and that costs real money. And so I'm not as concerned about the value to the customer because I think they're already getting a fantastic value from solar. I mean, you know, if you're getting power at cheaper than what you're paying the utility for, then you're getting a fantastic deal. You don't really have a lot of other options to do that. But I do think that we're not on track to, unless you think otherwise, to get solar onto one in seven homes in the United States in the next five years. I I think we can do it and with not a lot of marketing. And I may be maybe making a little bit of a controversial point here, but to give you an example, today, if you want to get a quote from a solar company, the solar company will not give you a quote without them talking to you first, uh, whether it's a phone call or or a, or a in-person visit. That to me is a one of the worst things as a company you can do is because you are, of course, the reason is very simple. You are trying to make sure that you get the best price for your services. But I think if you can now uh, offer pricing and, and choices to the consumer without the consumer actually needing to talk to anybody, I believe the uptake would be much 
much faster. Consumers will be more confident. They will have less skepticism about what they're being offered. And that would increase the conversion rates dramatically. Uh, I think Do at you any... mean like sending them something in the mail without them... Exactly. Like, I, I think that could be a great idea. I think Don't you could... feel like that would be intrusive, though? People being like, well, you're monitoring my rooftop? No, no, no. What you is don't, this? You don't have to give them exactly and say, this is how many panels will fit on your roof. You could actually say, hey, this is what price that I am charging. Uh, this is what the economics may look like, right? Uh, SolarCity can very easily go in, go online and say, I'm selling uh, leases or PPAs at whatever, let's say 13 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, versus whatever you are paying today, so uh, you can make you can bring the prices right uh, right up front. Uh, when car companies are advertising leases, they'll say what the lease prices are, and those are only available to the best uh, consu- customers. When I, I I get some somehow I think my phone number got um, into the cold calling lists of maybe a dozen or so uh, solar companies, and they they'll generally call me. They'll ask me ten questions about before they can give me a price. And they will, even then, they'll decline uh, to give me a quote until they can either, their salesperson can talk to me or they'll come and visit my house. Uh, it's it's frustrating that uh, they're asking me for my social, my credit score, uh, et cetera. I, so it, they, I think we, as a solar company, you're making it more difficult to sell your own product uh, at times. I really think you're... You're out to lunch on this, Vikram. I mean, I just think that <laughs> we're not a car company, right? You should be comparing us to HVAC companies, carpeting companies, lawn care companies, windows companies. And I think the solar industry is doing 10 times better than any of those companies are doing. And my sense is that from a consumer behavior point of view, but also just like from a um, just a you know, ethical point of view, I think we're doing a fantastic job. But I mean, but to Stephen, to your point, I think when you think about intrusiveness, I think we need to be more intrusive. You look at Claudia's company at PV Complete, with PV Sketch, I mean, you literally can just, you know, harmonize Google Maps to um, addresses, you know, draw solar panels on their roof and send them a, a price quote all in the mail. And I think that's a good thing. I think like forcing people to like look at how much money they're leaving on the table by not considering solar and being that intrusive is what we need. And that that is fine, Jigger. I think uh, that's a great idea. It's just the cost, right? To do that on a several million households and somebody manually or uh, using some kind of technology to be able to do that. Of course. It's less than $10 a household. I mean, it's extraordinary how cheap it is today now to do that. And I think... You know, and basically, I think what standard marketing 101 tells you is that you have to touch the customer seven times before they actually react to a piece of mail. So I think getting, you know, spending $70 per customer around the country to be able to get to one in seven households with solar power by the end of five years from now is worth every penny. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the money money is definitely well spent as as long as it's very focused on education and not a hard sell. I think you're going to see many more consumers respond. My my gut feel is that at, by this point, practically every homeowner in solar states, uh, if you would, has been touched by one or more installation company. These people now know about solar. Uh, most consumers know about solar or understand at least a little bit. They just don't have the confidence uh, in in solar, or they 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 have a lack of trust in solar companies and what they are what they're trying to sell. Uh, and that's where I think we can make a big difference. 
Yeah, so um, Vikram, because I live in Virginia, I have been touched by virtually no solar company. Uh, so I'm like in that place where I haven't had anybody reach out to me. But so let me ask you something about tax policy. So we have the federal in investment tax credit, but in a place like North Carolina, where they had really good solar tax credits, and then they phased out um, at the end of last year, and the payback, of course, for solar systems went up to from 9.3 years to 12.1 years. What has that done to the um, customer acquisition in North Carolina? Or is it dropping off? Or are people so conditioned because of a vibrant solar market that that it is continuing unabated, even though the credit went away? No, I, th I think the solar market definitely slowed down dramatically. And uh, I think you're, you're absolutely focusing on the right points, the payback period, right? So the best markets in the United States where solar is actively selling, a lot of, lot of consumers interested, the payback is in the seven and a half years or less. Uh, the second tier markets might be those markets that are in the uh, eight years to say maybe 12 or 13 year uh, term. And then of course the, the third tier markets are anywhere, the states where the payback is longer than that. So I, I think there is an opportunity for solar installation companies uh, to then maybe think about adjusting their prices. Uh, if they uh, are definitely a 12, 12 year payback, 8% return, the, the uptake on solar is less is likely to be less than if it was exactly the reverse, 80 year payback and 12% return. So can can solar installers try to, may have to become, I think it's a, they may have to become more efficient, uh, offer prices and offer economics the, that will bring that rate of return to closer to 10%, 11%, uh, and that could help uh, help bring back the market. But consumers are very, very focused on on economics, uh, the mass market consumer. And, and they are focused on economics, but you also pointed out in this that 34% of consumers are searching for higher quality products. They want to maximize production. They want higher efficiency products. They're willing to pay a little bit more for equipment that, that gives them those benefits. So why are these consumers gravitating toward the higher priced, higher efficiency products? And what does that say about uh, the sales process and maybe how equipment manufacturers start thinking about targeting these consumers? Absolutely, yeah, we are. So we are discussing with a number of manufacturers how they can try to differentiate. I try to, I like to use the example of toothpaste in some cases where uh, I may be looking for a enamel strengthening, some may be looking for a whitening toothpaste. And each each company has to really think about what is the unique value proposition that they are bringing to the table. Uh, are they the most efficient? Are they offering the best warranty? Are they American made? Are they making the best looking solar panels, uh, et cetera? Uh, so and who and are they helping customer maximize their production, etc. So you really have to focus on what your unique value proposition is. You're not going to get every consumer. Every consumer is not going to value what you're offering. So you have to be positioned to find those consumers that are looking for exactly what you have to offer. And that's where I think a platform like ours can be very powerful: is helping without having a 20-minute Q&A with a consumer to find out, try to figure out what exactly is important to them. Let's just show them all their choices, show them the spectrum of options that are available to them, and really highlight what are those key uh, value propositions that different, different companies bringing. And because solar is still pretty new, most consumers who are shopping for solar are doing so for the first time, there's a little bit of education that goes into it. So consumers may start the shopping process thinking that they are valuing one thing, 
And once you bring the options to the table, uh, they may start focusing on one or the other. Uh, they didn't even know that this kind of option existed and they focus on that and they end up making that decision. At that point, yes, they, if they believe that they, re, as, as, as my previous example, uh, we may be willing to pay more for a Mercedes as long as we understand what value that we are getting. It's the most advanced driving machine. Vikram Agarwal is the CEO of Energy Sage, which is an online marketplace for installers and consumers. And he joined us from downtown Boston. We were talking about the solar marketplace Intel report. We'll link to that on the podcast page. Vikram, thanks a lot for the conversation. Thank you, everyone. I really appreciate the opportunity. Let's move to Australia now. At 4.20 p.m. last Wednesday, a fierce storm tripped South Australia's entire electric grid, sending the state into a blackout. In the northern region, where many industrial companies operate, power was out for days. Grid operators were not prepared for the cascading consequences of the storm, nor was anyone prepared for the political storm in the aftermath. As the Australian energy market operator looks into the exact cause of the statewide blackout, politicians, journalists, and pundits are piling on the blame. The blame generally falls into two categories, blame the grid operator or blame wind power. The blame wind camp has stirred up a lot of controversy. After all, South Australia gets 40% of its electricity from wind, and that's what we're going to talk about. Let me first briefly describe what happened last week. In the evening, this strong low-pressure system blew through South Australia, knocking out three high-voltage transmission lines. The fossil generation rode through the faults, but at 418, 315 megawatts of wind generation disconnected. This forced uh, a connector line between South Australia and Victoria to pick up the slack in balancing the grid, and it quickly became overloaded. The connector eventually tripped, uh, and South Australia blacked out. Wind skeptics, along with Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, were quick to blame wind, and other supporters of wind rushed to defend the resource. At the time of the blackout, wind was providing around 70% of South Australia's electricity. Um, So, you know, it's understandable that people are jumping to conclusions. But what actually happened? And is wind to blame? Catherine, this Monday, the Australian energy market operator issued a, a preliminary report. What can we conclude from that so far? Yeah, so it's not the fault of wind power, (laughs) just that basically. But um, just to step back for one second, the forensics analysis of what's what happened there has been happening in an impressively fast speed. So I don't know if you remember in 2003 when the Northeast had the blackout, it took them a year to find out that it was a branch in Cleveland that that caused it. So this has been happening in real time quite, quite quickly. So it's impressive that they're able to kind of deconstruct what happened as quickly as they have. I mean, basically, there was some really awful weather. There were there were high winds, there were lightning strikes, there were a lot of phase to ground faults, um, cross phasing. And what happened was the system reacted the way it was designed to do. So I mean, projects, wind projects, generators are designed to come offline for safety reasons. And wind has even more stringent standards than most other generators for voltage and frequency ride through. So they can ride through a little bit and then they're going to come offline because of safety reasons. So not only was wind not the cause of it, but it reacted in the way it was designed to do. And in in, in fact, if you if you look at the entire system, it's better to have more distributed assets. And we can talk more about that. But in fact, I think that rather than 
deciding that wind is a bad idea, we should probably increase and increase even more distributed assets so that this kind of um, issue doesn't happen in the future. Wait a second. So uh, that doesn't make sense to me exactly, because if the wind was designed to trip offline, um, the, because South Australia gets so much electricity from wind and you know at that moment, the, the supply was so great, isn't that that's that's what happened. I mean, the, it overloaded that connector. And because the wind tripped off as it was designed to, it, it caused the overload on the connector and caused the system-wide blackout. So I, I think that the, the grid operator is not drawing any conclusions yet, but it seems to me like it's still an open question whether wind was to blame. Well, wind was not to blame for the bad weather. I think that you have to look at the system design and look at where the transmission lines are and where the interconnections are and who's on what when. And so it's not like the 880 megawatts of wind was all in one plant and happened at one time. There were lots of, you know, there were smaller facilities of 80 megawatt, 30 megawatt ranges that tripped off. Um, but they did what they were designed to do for safety reasons. So I think that the more disaggregated you have a system, the more backstops you have built in. The issue is, do you have your grid strong enough? Is your transmission line strong enough? And do you have enough um, interconnections to be able to make sure that you can backfeed? The, the big thing here is that when you think about wind energy, every group that has the amount of wind energy that you know South Australia has, has really detailed weather forecasting. I mean, when you look at ERCOT's work in Texas, they are saying that they can predict with almost, you know, like amazing certainty exactly what's going to happen in the next 15 to 30 minute period. Um, and so... The planning process is actually robust and it's there. So this is really not wind energy's fault. I mean, we can certainly say that in this case, wind did this and that happened. But when you actually have such substantial damage to transmission lines and then you end up with an imbalance between generation and supply, which is really what happened here, you automatically get system shutdowns. And that happens with nuclear, which happened to a nuclear power plant down in Florida when one of its transmission lines you know, went down um, unexpectedly. It happens to coal plants. It happens to everyone. And then you need to black start those uh, power plants back up, which is what you know South Australia had to deal with as well. So I just think that this is purely an unadulterated political hack job. And what was shocking to me was how quickly like major reporters including Murdoch's you know groups as well as others were willing to just take the bait without asking any tough questions well is that really surprising though <laughs> it is surprising i mean maybe we can say know. that all of journalism is dead now but it just seems to me like you know that these guys should not be taking the fodder from the fossil industry as well as these politicians who are clearly in someone's pocket um and you know not you know, like asking tough questions around whether, you know, I mean, it was pretty easy to ask the regulators and ask the system operators. They were not lying um, in this process. And so they could have had a more complete story. Yeah, for sure. There's been some good journalism around this. But I would also say that there were a number of journalists, particularly a story I saw in The Guardian, that jumped to conclusions on the other side of this issue. And they said, absolutely, wind was not to blame before the market operator issued really any facts about what had happened. So 
there was a lot of jumping to conclusions on both sides. No, I mean, uh, look, but wind clearly, is not like, to, just blaming this no, on no, but wind. wind is not to blame. I mean, and it's never to blame. I mean, and solar is never to blame either. I think that this notion that how can exists, you say that? What? Because I, I know how the grid works. The way the <laughs> grid works is that no one would allow a solar system or a wind system to interconnect into a grid without having the tools necessary to deal with an immediate shutdown because of a cloud going overhead or because of wind, you know, like having to shut down because of storms. This is exactly what grid operators do for a living. It's, it's, it's unconscionable to me that this isn't common knowledge amongst the people that are making these kinds of accusations. Well, look, the, there is one important piece of this report from the grid operator, and that was they said that there was no local frequency ancillary control services um, that would balance out the grid between Victoria and South Australia. They were not prepared for this type of event. So that does point to a grid control problem and not necessarily a wind problem. But it's never a wind problem is what I'm saying. If if the wind actually caused this problem, then it's the grid operator's fault for not realizing that the wind energy would actually have that impact on the grid and not demanding that the wind farm actually put in battery storage or ancillary services support or whatever it is. It is the grid operator's responsibility. That's why we pay them a million dollars for a grid study before they allow us to interconnect. No, I'm not. I'm I'm not saying that you're wrong on that. I'm just saying that if a bunch of coal plants say tripped offline, would we be singing the same tune? Would you yes. be saying that? No, of I course would ab- it's not. No, no, no. I would absolutely coal. sing the same tune. When a nuclear power plant shuts down in South Florida, which just happened a few years ago, right? They had an entire plan in place on how to actually keep people, you know, supplied by power. That is what they are supposed to do, and that is why I respect utility. Uh, companies and grid operators that provide that function. I mean, that is exactly what they do. And that's why they charge us so much money for these grid studies all the time, many of which I don't think are necessary, but they charge us anyway all the time for exactly this purpose. So all I'm saying to you is even if it was the wind farm that did it, the fault still remains with the system operator. It's not the fault of the wind farm. Yeah, and if you look at some of the incidents here in this country, say Superstorm Sandy, the wind turbines kept working just fine. The polar vortex, in fact, it was the gas plants that had been diverted for heating and weren't able to provide generation. And so wind and demand response had to step up and provide power during the polar vortex. I think this is it's exactly right that the wind, not the wind power, is at fault. I also think that I also think that what you're saying here is that basically that is that you know, like as the utility companies morph and change into utility 2.0 and 3.0, this basic service will always be something that is necessary for them to provide. And whether it's done through a for-profit entity or whether like Southern Company does, for instance, in, you know, in the Southern states, or whether it's done by an ISO like the PJM or MISO or ERCOT, this is a service that will always have to be provided um, separately from what we've been talking about around, you know, the utility 2.0 and 3.0 stuff. Yeah, and I will say I'm impressed with the Australian energy market operator, AEMO, um, at the speed at which they're doing the, the real investigation on what happened. Oh, yeah, me too. I'm just not impressed by the hatchet job by the politicians. Well, I'm really keen on reading the final report. And that piece that said that there was no ancillary control uh, to balance the grids between Victoria and South Australia was 
really important for me, and I'm looking for more detail on that because I think that our understanding of this issue is going to hinge on that point right there. So let's end the show in your backyard, Jigger, New York City. I guess I shouldn't admit this, but I was trying really hard to find lyrics from Taylor Swift's Welcome to New York to kick this segment off, but it didn't work. (laughs) Anyway, we were talking about what is working in New York City, and that is solar power. The New York Times had a fantastic piece in this weekend's paper on the surge of installations across the different boroughs. According to the Department of Buildings, permits for solar projects have increased by 1,000% since 2012. And since Jigger is on the board of the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, I thought we would use the Times story as a way to revisit what's going on there in New York. In late September, the city updated its solar target to 1,000 megawatts by 2030 and added a storage target for 100 megawatt hours by that date. That is the country's first municipal storage target, if I'm uh, correct on that. And it's by 2020. It's by 2020, right. Yeah, so um, that's a pretty substantial target and the first of its kind. Jigger, what's New York doing right here on solar power? Well, I think as you guys have all heard me talk about on this podcast, um, you know, New York Sun was designed as a carbon copy with, of course, some obvious small improvements um, to the CSI program in California. And, you know, what we've said is that, you know, that there's a social compact and that social compact is we'll put up a billion dollars in this case in the state of New York. We'll do it under these volume-based reductions um, for small residential projects, for commercial projects, and then for large-scale projects. And that as we fill up the volume um, in each territory within New York, you can imagine that the amount of sunlight and the kilowatt hours that they're offsetting is vastly different between Buffalo and, and Long Island. Um, then you end up getting a reduction in the subsidy. And, um, and it's worked. It's worked exactly like California Solar Initiative did, um, and it's worked beautifully. And, and what it does is it, requ- it, it, it encourages solar companies to invest heavily in the state of New York. And so before the New York Sun program was um, in existence, NYSERDA was almost impossible to work with on the solar subsidy programs. Um, and everyone was serving New York State via offices in Connecticut and New Jersey. And after the New York Sun program, we had over 200 new companies that started in New York State, and they have hired almost 2,700 full-time people in the state now to service this market. And that's what you get when you do that is you get well-trained salespeople that are knocking on doors and convincing people to switch to solar. Um, Amazingly, I would say most of those applications, though, are DG, and I think New York is really leading the way in convincing people um, to prefer DG over large utility-scale projects. Now, New York City's solar target is not mandatory, right? It's not mandatory, but there is real goals, and there's a billion dollars behind it. So, Well, tied to it also were, were ref- reforms of the permitting process and you know an attempt to drop soft costs and make it easier to get through an interconnection queue, which is, you know, I hear the interconnection queue is uh, pretty terrible there in New York. But uh, in for general... For large-scale projects. For large-scale projects. That's not the projects. case for a DG. It's not, um, okay. And it took us almost a year and a half to fix what was wrong in Con Ed's territory in New York City. Um, so when the New York Sun program was launched, New York City was still impossible to work with. Um, and you, you see some of those anecdotes in the piece in the New York Times. Um, but today it's monumentally easier. It's still the hardest place to do business in the state of New York, but it's so much easier in New York City than it was a year and a half ago. 
Yeah, and it seemed that one of the one of the barriers on rooftops was the New York Fire Department um, having a six foot a need for a six foot perimeter clear path between skylights and doors, and what that did was create um, an innovation space where uh, Brooklyn Solar Works came up with this canopy uh, set up uh, ten feet above the roof so that you could you could avoid having to worry about the, the fire department um, regulations by having your solar uh, raised above. So then townhouses are, are able to get solar. Yeah, FDNY is a very powerful organ of the city of New York. And, you know, as you know, it's what's ca- preventing lithium-ion batteries from being deployed in New York City right now um, in favor of lead acid. But, but and so I, I certainly don't think that we've solved all the problems in New York State, but I do think that we have created the certainty required to have the the solar industry invest tremendous amounts of resources. And that is the that is the formula that keeps coming back over and over again in the solar industry is that there is a tremendous amount of um, of of human power that wants to work for free, frankly, to make something work until they successfully sell a solar system and get and are allowed to pay themselves. But the certainty of the marketplace is required for them to make that met that sacrifice or that investment. Well, and they're large building owners um, that want to drop their, their operating costs. And so, for example, Glenwood, which is one of the largest owners and builders of like these luxury rental apartments, is putting storage in. They're doing 1.1 megawatts of distributed storage by early 2017. Their next big project is rooftop solar optimization to try to combine the two. But it says something when the building owners are in on this as well. Oh, yeah. You know, by the way, that storage project is in the building next door to mine. Awesome. (laughs) So I visited that uh, installation. It's being done by Demand Energy, who's a great company. Yeah, Demand's been operating in New York for quite a while. They really focused heavily on New York City. Uh, so, Catherine, the storage target, 100 megawatt hours by 2020. Um, what do we know about it, and why is this so significant? Yeah, so, it, again, just as any st- other storage targets, like in California and Massachusetts is going to do one, I mean, this creates a market um, and some certainty. Um, certainly, the solar helps because this is going to go in, in large um, degree to support that market, too. But I, th- I think it's huge, especially because New York Rev just doesn't really have much for storage in it. And so for New York City to take this position is really good for, for the industry. And basically, they're just attempting to follow what they did with solar, and that is to streamline the permitting process, to you know speed up the, the fire department's um, verdict on how to deal with lithium-ion batteries. This isn't a mandate, but it is putting in place a framework to to achieve all those goals and make it easier to install storage. Yeah, and I think it's important for the all those companies like Demand Energy, STEM, all these other ones that are doing behind the meter kind of aggregation. I think this is really important to that space. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, what you're finding in the storage space is, and Demand Energy has this great PowerPoint that they um, show people, um, in that the idiosyncrasies of the New York City grid with Con Ed um, is particularly well-suited for storage. Um, The amount of overbuilding of T&D capacity in New York City is rampant to try to maintain the reliability of the grid. And small strategic storage installations really can provide Con Ed much, much cheaper solutions to meeting those reliability requirements. 
um, than what they're currently doing. And so the the economics are just off the charts. And I think that, you know, the, the complications of Rev, um, which Green Tech Media, I think, had a conference on last week, um, you know, have slowed down this process. And New York City coming forward and putting this program together is more pressure on Con Ed and on Rev to get their act together. Well, I think we can leave it there on New York City. A lot of good things happening there. And uh, if for those of you who haven't read your 10 articles this month on the New York Times, we'll link to it on our podcast page and you can read the article. And if if you subscribe, good for you. Okay, uh, let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Catherine, you're up first. Okay, since I haven't talked about FERC in a while, I just thought I would do that. That um, last week, the FERC... uh, put out a notice of a technical conference for their docket, which is on utilization in the organized markets of electric storage resources as transmission assets. Um, And that's to be compensated through transmission rates for grid support services, other ways, multiple services. This is a big deal because FERC really does want to try to figure out how do we compensate innovation um, that provides storage on the grid. And they're going to have this on November 9th. There will be a lot of people testifying and you'll continue on this investigation in this docket into how are we going to change the tariff structure so that storage can really participate in the wholesale market and get compensated for what it does. And that'll that'll make the market grow even more. If you're interested in how storage and other resources can play in wholesale markets, we had a fun conversation on the interchange earlier this week with Elta Colo, who's one of our smart grid analysts. And uh, that is, of course, a, subs- a podcast you have to subscribe to, but it is super in-depth on how these markets work and how PJM, MISO, California ISO, and ERCOT all work and, and these different rules in place. Uh, Jigger, what's your story? So 18 months ago, National Grid expected the UK solar market to reach 5.5 gigawatts by today, and it's actually 12 gigawatts. It's so high in the UK that for the first six months of the year, solar provided more power to the UK than coal did. Um, And then separately, uh, the Solar Industry Association of the UK did a study. They hired Dr. Benjamin Irons um, at Aurora Energy Research to write a report. And the report showed that um, the integration of solar into the UK grid cost almost nothing. And in the context of the approval of the Hinkley Point C project, I think that makes those numbers all the more powerful. Yeah, it's just, it's just extraordinary for a place like the UK, which literally has no sun, um, to be able to cost-effectively do that much solar is just, it's mind-blowing. You know, I think maybe a year ago, I came back to New Hampshire for Thanksgiving. I'm in New Hampshire this week, by the way, visiting family. I mentioned that along areas um, that I usually visited when I grew up, I would see a lot more solar systems. And here I am a year later and there are even more solar systems around the neighborhoods and the that I grew up in and the highways that I drove on. And it's really remarkable. And I think this speaks to our first segment. Um, you know, I, it's very possible that we can get to one in seven rooftops in five years or so. And just to be able to see it in a state like New Hampshire, which doesn't really have a robust solar market, to go into my neighborhood and see houses popping up all over the place with solar, you just feel like you're at the beginning of something really meaningful. So I just wanted to to mention that as I look out my window here in, in the neighborhood that I grew up at. So I had this conversation with Ethan Zindler um, from Bloomberg and uh, at um, 
at SPI, and he told me that was patently not possible in the U.S., and I think we should have a bet because I really do believe in the U.S. and its solar industry, and I really do think we can reach the same targets that Australia reached. We like bets here, so I guess we're just going to lay that on the table. (laughs) We'll have to to get Ethan um, on Twitter. Yeah, for sure. And also, I mean, some of our listeners are probably remind us on Twitter that you still owe me a cocktail because Apple did not buy Tesla. I know. I know. I mean, like, I mean, Apple buying McLaren sounds like the dumbest move ever, but, um, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. But, uh, yes, I lost that bet. Well, that won't stop us from issuing more bets on this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. When I start seeing rooftop solar in my Arlington neighborhood, I will enter the bet, but I'm out of it for now. Oh, it's coming. I guarantee you that in the next five years, Northern Virginia will have a crap load of solar. I for hope no other so. Reason, I want it. But for no other reason than I was talking to Barry Cinnamon the other day, and he told me that they're regularly installing solar projects residential for less than 250 a watt now. And at that, at that point, you already have net metering in, in Virginia. At that point, the numbers really do work. If that happens, you'll hear about it on the Energy Gang. That does it for us this week, folks. Thanks for listening. You can find us anywhere that you access podcasts and go ahead and leave us a rating and review on itunes it does help us a lot with traction and for getting new listeners and of course we appreciate everyone who's already done that email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com to send your show ideas and your comments and a couple of the segments in this show were from listeners so we do take your comments pretty seriously and We will catch you next week at the South by Southwest Eco Conference. We hope to see some of you there and and, uh, talk to you in person. Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week, and we'll see you next week in Austin. Thanks. Look forward to getting weird in Austin. (laughs) Jager, let's get weird, and uh, I'll take you up on that cocktail from the Tesla Apple bet. Yeah, we should definitely drink a cocktail on the night of the 11th, and if anyone wants to join us, we will tweet out where. Absolutely. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.